When you are traveling from point A to point B, usually the decision of which way to get there isn't that important. But when it comes to deciding whether you will turn toward Jesus or the Mosaic Law as your route to eternal life, the decision is much more serious. Cultural religious groups would be wise to listen to how a learned first century Jew argued about this. Let's join our study leader Dave Wurtson as we continue with The Gospel in the Synagogue, Part 2. Our kids just yesterday had to come up I-35. Anybody ever take I-35 up from Austin to Dallas? In fact, you can go all the way down to Laredo and come right up the I-35 corridor. And when you get up to a little bit north of Waco at Hillsboro, it's decision time. When you get to Hillsboro, you got to decide whether you're going to go to the west and go to where? Fort Worth. Or whether you're going to go to the east and go to Dallas. If you turn to the to the west, you're going to be in Fort Worth in 40 minutes. If you go to the east, you're going to be in Dallas in about the same amount of time. If you look at the map, it's really not so important what decision that you make if you are going to Denton. Because if you just keep on trucking, if you keep on going all the way up to Denton, It all unites back together again, and it's just about the same. In fact, you can call and check on the traffic. But this morning, the Apostle Paul was in the synagogue of Antioch. It was like they came to Hillsborough. It was decision time. What I want you to realize, the gospel is just breaking into what's now modern-day Turkey. The Apostle Paul in Acts 13 comes to a synagogue, and we presented the idea of what would the Apostle Paul say if he got invited to a synagogue. And I want you to turn your Bibles. We're going to do the gospel in the synagogue, part two. You can go back and check out what we began to look at, the whole history of Judaism. And the essence of this message is that it's decision time. What the Apostle Paul does is he begins with your Genesis through Malachi. And he actually puts together the whole Old Testament scripture. That's what we did in the session we had last week. He starts out with the Exodus. He goes into the period of the judges. He comes through the period and he ends up with the period of the United Monarchy. He goes from the deliverance by Moses of the people in the book of Exodus to King David. If you turn into Acts 13, if you look at it, it says in verse 22, he says, He testified concerning him, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. Now it's decision and transition time. Everything that the Apostle Paul has said so far, they would have totally agreed with. They would have said, that's right, Paul. I I know that the Lord delivered us through the Red Sea. I know that during the period of the judges all the way to Samuel, that we were disobedient, but the Lord was faithful. They would have all agreed King David was our ideal man. But when the Apostle Paul said he's a man that was after God's own heart, that was an incredibly powerful statement because they would have known the story that he committed adultery and he committed murder. And so a a big question would have come in their mind. How can you say that David was a man after God's own heart that obeyed all of God's statutes and he actually did what God had planned for him in his time. That's what it says. Someone will raise their hand in the synagogue, and you should raise your hand and say, no, wait a minute. David didn't obey the law of Moses. How can we say that he walked according to God's purposes and plans, and he accomplished all that God wanted him to do? And the answer to that question 
leads you to Jesus. You see, if you were an Old Testament person, you were all excited about King David, and then he let you down. As you're reading the story of the Old Testament, one of the major points of those Old Testament stories is for you to be disappointed. You rise up in the story of Moses. You rise up in the story of Noah. You rise up in the story of David, and then it crashes. They have feet of clay. They disobey. What it does is give you a yearning for a greater king. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants to awaken inside of every one of us this morning. There's no human being that you're going to trust and you're going to depend upon during the course of your life that's not going to disappoint you. But the Apostle Paul is going to say that there's one man that will never disappoint us. And if you trust in him, if you trust in him, not only in this life, but forever and ever and ever, you're going to be okay. That's the thrust of his message. He just created a big transition. The big question, how can the Apostle Paul say David was a man after God's own heart that obeyed all God's statutes and commandments? And he jumps from a thousand years before Christ right to Jesus. Look what it says. From this man's seed, God has brought to Israel. Look at it in verse 23. From this man's seed, from this man's seed, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. One of the big issues that you need to ask yourself today is as you open up to the Jewish scriptures, what are they promising? And have they delivered on the promises? This is a first century historical source. And the apostle is saying that in the first century, a Jewish rabbi like Paul, speaking to a Jewish audience, said that Jesus fulfilled all the promises to Israel. You see, what happened in the first century, there really is. It's not just on Hillsborough. It's not only there that there's a big decision. But in the first century, you can go one of two ways. And I want you to really understand this. In the first century, because of Paul speaking in synagogues like this, he spoke to Jewish people. And one group of those Jewish people said, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus died on the cross so we could be forgiven. Jesus rose again. Another group said, no. He did not fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. Salvation is found in the law of Moses. At best... Jesus was a misunderstood Galilean rabbi. If you choose one direction, you end up into Orthodox Judaism if you stay with your Judaism. If you go the other route, you become a Christian. Sadly, as I speak to you this morning, I think both Christians and Jews need to go back and look at what Paul was actually saying. Because to be honest with you, Christianity has become a cultural thing. It's become an ethnic thing, a Gentile thing. It's become an American thing. And for my Jewish friends, it's the opposite of what they want to be committed to. And it's a tremendous impasse because Christianity, in the name of Jesus, has butchered millions of Jews. And then Jews started out for the first three centuries of Christianity until Christianity gained the ascendancy. The Jews persecuted Christians. In fact, in this passage, it's a big choice. There's going to be Jews that reject Paul's message, and they are jealous, and they throw Paul and Barnabas out of Antioch. they got to run for their lives. And that's going to happen all through the first century. 
It's very, very powerful. So Jews as a group persecuted, especially the leaders, persecuted a man like Paul who was Jewish that was trying to tell them about Jesus. And so one of the things I want you to ask yourself is, well, what have I decided? And why have I decided it? And Paul would be saying, this is why you should believe that Jesus is not just a cultural symbol. He's not just a myth. He is the individual person that you need to build your life on, that you need to trust. Jesus as a person, what he did is really important. The question we need to raise is, is Jesus the ultimate son of David? And if he is, what has he done? The Apostle Paul does a very interesting thing in the next verse. You would think that he would launch right into the story of Jesus when he did it on the cross, but he doesn't. When you study Luke and Acts, Luke and Acts go together. And I want to challenge you. Some of you have studied the Bible all of your life. And when I ask you, where does Luke begin the story of Jesus? You don't have any idea. Like if I were to ask you right now, where does Dr. Luke, he wrote the book of Acts. This is volume two. Where does Luke begin the story in his gospel? And you should know that. If in any other field, if you were learning this stuff every week for 30 years, you would have to know something. And I don't want to discourage you. I want to get you excited. It's unbelievable if you'll start reading the Bible, kind of like you read other books, starting at the beginning and going to the end. Instead of just taking sections, little sentences here and there. And because you're not going to understand this book, you say, well, Dave, why is it so important? Because Dr. Luke expects you, as you read this, to know where he started it. He started the story of Jesus with the conception of John the Baptist. Then he has the conception of Jesus, very beautiful, skilled storytelling. Then he has the birth of John the Baptist. And then he has the birth of Jesus. And then he presents John the Baptist's ministry. And John the Baptist is very important because he's the swing prophet that moves you from the old covenant to the new covenant. And you say, well, Dave, where do you get that from? Look what it says right here. It says, from this man's descendants, the Lord produces Savior Jesus. Before the coming of Jesus, before Jesus came, there was another man who was a great prophet who was conceived, and his name was John. Before the coming of Jesus, John, this is John the Baptist, preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. So Paul is starting out speaking to a synagogue, and as he mentioned John the Baptist in the first century, they would have known, yeah, John the Baptist. We heard about him. Because thousands of people came flocking from Judea down by the Dead Sea and they heard him say, repent, you need to turn around because God's kingdom is here. And they heard that John the Baptist produced this very powerful movement. In fact, in Ephesus, for example, there's a whole bunch of people that believed in John the Baptist. And when the Apostle Paul got there, he had to say, no, John the Baptist was the beginning of the message But you need to go on to what John the Baptist preached. In fact, I can show you in other sources that in the first century there were, there were John the Baptist movement. We need to believe in John the Baptist. What Paul is challenging us to do is no, John the Baptist, the real John the Baptist is the forerunner that announces Jesus. And Paul's going to prove that. He said before Jesus was introduced, John preached turning around and getting baptized in preparation to all the people of Israel, and this is preparation for the Messiah. As John was completing his work, 
So as John was completing his preaching, baptizing ministry, he asked, who do you think that I am? So as you're reading this account, you say, who do I think John the Baptist is? Who do you think John the Baptist is? And the writer, John the Baptist, is trying to elicit, and he assumes the way they answer the question. A whole bunch of people in the first century would have said, you're the Messiah. Like when John the Baptist was baptizing those hundreds of thousands of people, a lot of people were saying, well, you're the Messiah. John the Baptist says, no, look what he says. Who do you think I am? And it assumes everyone, a lot of people are saying, you're the Messiah. He says, no, I'm not. I'm not the one. No, but he's coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. So the very first thing that you need to come to grips with, should I believe in Jesus, I would challenge you. Before you decide to believe in Jesus, you should go back and you should analyze whether or not you think John the Baptist is a truth teller. You should use all the ways that you determine whether someone's telling the truth or not. Every single day you meet somebody and you interact with them, you have them talk with you, and you need to do that with the Bible. Because the Bible presents John the Baptist to you as a man that lives out in the open. He doesn't wear fancy clothes. Some of you feel like, I think religious leadership is a bunch of hypocrisy. John the Baptist would agree with you. So that idea you have deep in your soul that you don't like religious leaders that are just pomp and circumstance and there's no fire with their smoke, John the Baptist would agree with you. So Paul is saying to the Jewish audience he's speaking to, remember John the Baptist. But John the Baptist said something really important, and it's what our church family needs to be about. Nobody gets honor in our group like Jesus. Just stop and think about it. Here's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Some of you have been raised in traditions where you really worship the saints. And we go through periods, like if you're from that kind of background, that people are sainted. Some of you have spent hours and hours and hours trusting in saints. Well, I want to tell you, as your pastor teaches you, if you want to trust in a saint, the best one you could trust in is John the Baptist. Because he's the last one, and he's just before the coming of God. The coming of the Son. I want you to hear what he says. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie the leather thongs on his sandals. And that's the spirit I want to have. Who is this man, Jesus, that the greatest prophet of the Old Testament period said, compared to him, I can't even get down on my knees and untie the sandals. You see, John gives glory and honor to Jesus. And Paul is raising a tremendous question in his audience. Who is this man, Jesus, that this great prophet that everybody agreed was a man that was a man of integrity, a man of truth? You know, what is so strategic about this Jesus? And that leads to the next point. He says, brothers and children of Abraham. When you see that in verse 26, you say, well, Dave, why are you so exercised that Jesus needs to be presented to Jewish people? Why through the years in our church? Do we give to chosen people ministry? Why do we give to, to Jews for Jesus? Why is there a class, even as we're teaching right now, right there in the side room that we just interfered with, why are they studying about the fulfillment of prophecy with Israel? Because Jesus in the scripture is for Jews. And that's what this whole text is about. All the way through this text, the apostle Paul says, Israel. Sons of Abraham. He is one of them, children of Abraham. He also includes the God-respecting, God-fearing Gentiles who have now joined the synagogue. They're moving towards the great worship of the I Am. 
And, and they're going to become a very powerful, receptive audience that respond to the truth about Jesus. They're Gentiles that are sitting in the synagogue service and they really want to learn what the, what the Jewish scriptures are about. And the Apostle Paul is opening up those Jewish scriptures and their hearts are burning within them. And I want you to see the Apostle Paul is including that audience. My children of Abraham, God-fearing Gentiles. It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The God of the universe didn't send the promise of salvation in northern India to Buddha. He didn't. A lot of you will grow up and you'll go out to university and you're going to find out that Buddha can give you quiet rest, help you with suffering. But I want you to understand that what Paul just said, and you need to come grips with it, Jesus is not another Buddha. Jesus never announced salvation in northern India. And I know that goes totally against pluralism and a multiculturalism and everything else, but it's the truth. When you die, you're not going to be before Buddha. As you grow older and you're really attracted to the wondrous colors and the beauty of Hinduism, Paul is saying salvation didn't come on the other side of India in the Hindus Valley. You're not going to find salvation. You'll find a lot of practical ideas about how to live. You're going to find a lot of insight into how to work with your stress. You know, you can do yoga and all that kind of stuff. It will help you physically. But I want you to really understand that this is an ancient first century document. And a leading rabbi that was trained in Jerusalem is saying, salvation was given to the Jews. When did that happen? 2,000 years ago, there's a Jewish man who was born. That's Paul's point. And he's from the seed of David. And he was presented to Jewish people. Look what it says. It says, my brothers and sisters, this salvation was given to you. Now, the people in Jerusalem, their rulers, did not recognize him. One of the big issues you need to wrestle with as you study the story of Jesus is, good night, Jesus went up to Jerusalem at Palm Sunday. They were hailing him as the great king. A week later, they crucified him. What in the world's going on? I want you to follow Paul's argument. Look what he says. He says that the people in Jerusalem, especially their rulers, they didn't recognize him. Yet in condemning them, condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. So one of the traditions we want to keep in mind, I want you to know that in the first century, every single Saturday, they read the scripture. So whatever group of believers you're in, we need to continue that tradition. We need to read the scriptures. That's why we're doing what we're doing now. We need to have programs challenging you to read through the Bible. I want you to see where all that comes from. We're really with our old covenant believers that we're reading the scriptures. But I want you to notice something. They read the scriptures every single Sabbath. And they didn't recognize the one that those scriptures talked about. And that can happen to you. It can happen to me. Notice what Paul says. He says, when they didn't recognize him, and there's a great irony in this, they actually fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence. Jesus was totally innocent, and you can read about that in his trials. They work and work and work trying to find how Jesus could have been accused of being handed over and have the death sentence. They can't find anything. So finally, they hand over an innocent man. It says they asked Pilate to have him executed. So it's a monkey trial. It's a hyped-up trial. Paul is very clear they're crucifying an innocent man. 
They asked Pilate to have him crucified, and when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, I want you to feel the irony of this. The Old Testament scriptures that were read every single Sabbath said that an ultimate son of David would be pierced. It said that an ultimate son of David would be offered as a sacrifice. John the Baptist, if you read the book of Luke and also the book of John, says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away this in the world. So if you were reading your Old Testament scriptures, the way I've been sharing, if you actually let God build his promise, then you would know when the ultimate son of David comes, he's got to be sacrificed like Isaac almost was. He needs to be lifted up on a pole like the serpent in the wilderness was. He needs to be the suffering servant that Isaiah 53 would be offered as an atonement, as a covering for our sins. The Lord had to lay on him the iniquitous all. Even at Dallas Seminary where I teach, some of my Old Testament scholars that trained me, they don't put that together because they focus on individual little passages and they are so hesitant to do what was done throughout church history where little verses were taken, some of them were taken out of context. So they're really hesitant to do that. I want you to understand the thrust of the Apostle Paul's argument. What Paul is saying is if you'll read the redemptive story of the Old Testament, as you let God tell you the story in the Old Testament, if you read it every single Sabbath and then you studied it during the week, you would end up understanding that the Messiah would go to Jerusalem and he would be rejected. That he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That he would be a man that we thought he was stricken of God. And we didn't understand that, that God was striking him for us. All that's in the Old Testament. And that's why I'm so burdened in my church family. I don't want us to repeat what happened in the first century. The people that knew God's word the most didn't get it. And the people that were kind of on the outside, like the God-fearing Gentiles, they listened to the Apostle Paul. And the big argument between a believer in Jesus and a believer in rabbinic Judaism is who is this Jesus? And on Paul's side, the Apostle Paul is saying, their Old Testament scriptures predicted that Jesus would be falsely accused, an innocent man would be sacrificed. And he's actually had this weird irony. The Lord is actually orchestrating the story. Like he's the one that's actually controlling the events. But the Jewish leaders are responsible and so are you. One of the things I want you to know about the mystery of God is God's going to write your story whether you like it or not. Did you hear what I just said? God's writing every one of our stories whether you like it or not. Now you can get really angry with him. And you can play the role in his story as the bad person, the person that slays innocent people, the people that tries to guard your own stuff, the people that when God really speaks to you and says, no, it's about this, you go, no, it's going to be about this. You can play that role. In fact, that role is, is very strong in the book of Acts. We've been learning this. All the way through the book of Acts, there's those that stone Stephen And there's those that bury him and treat him beautifully. And then there's this weird swing where the man that was instigating all that becomes the man that's preaching to us right now. 
You want to get caught up in the story. And this morning, you need to ask yourself, what about my own heart? What do I believe about Jesus? And one of the things Luke is saying is you're never going to escape the plot, the story that God is telling. And I want you to feel this weird thing. He says the Jews actually fulfilled what his will was, but they're responsible for it. And I don't understand that completely. But when they're done playing the role they should, God is so gracious in this book. Remember, Peter spoke to the crowd that made the decision to crucify Jesus, including a lot of the leaders. So God isn't unfair. But I do want you to understand the Apostle Paul is arguing really strongly that the enemies of God and the ones that killed an innocent man, they still played the role in the story that God said they would play. And I want to ask you, what role am I playing this morning? What role are you playing? Now, if the story ended there, it would be a disastrous story. It would have been the story of another great martyr that was misunderstood. He was an innocent man, and he got brutally hung on a cross. And that story is told again and again. And if that story is all the story there was, I would just throw my hand and say, we need to get out of here. This is the stupidest thing in the world. But... Jesus is not only the one that John the Baptist pointed to. He's not only the one that was falsely accused and then crucified and put on a tree. It says he's not only the one that they took him off the tree and put him in the tomb. But look what Paul says next. It says when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. And verse 30, look at it. This is one of the most important, powerful transitions in all of the universe. But... God raised him from the dead. Amen? That's what our faith is. Paul graphically described it. You can see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus tenderly taking the body of Jesus off the tree, which is a powerful way to describe the crucifix. They put him in a tomb. We all go through those experiences. We have our loved one in intensive care. Then they die. Then you have to have them declared dead. Then you have to have the undertaker come and you wrap them all up and they take them out in this gurney. I do it all the time. I even help the guys do it. A few days later, we're here maybe or in a church somewhere and the body's out here in front. Then we go to the grave. We put them in the grave. How many of you have ever experienced that? No other story does the next part. But God raised him from the dead. That's what his argument is. Look what he said. It says, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen. You say, well, Dave, how do I know he was raised from the dead? He was seen for many days by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So when Paul was writing this book, you say, well, why should I believe you just rose again from the dead? Because Luke's gospel tells you about Jesus having a big people movement in Galilee. All the gospels are structured like that. Then Jesus, the story rivets up to the big tension in Jerusalem and the people from Galilee that followed him are very disappointed because Jesus is rejected by the leaders in Jerusalem and he's crucified. And all the Galileans are crushed because their great rabbi, their great teacher, the great miracles dead. But then suddenly Jesus is appearing to these Galileans that followed him from the beginning. Like the disciples are from Galilee. And that's what Paul is actually saying. And you know what he's saying? If you were in the first century, you could have gone to Judea. You could have gone to Antioch. And you could have talked to people that said, yeah, we saw Jesus baptized by John the Baptist. That's what Paul's actually saying in a first century source. He's saying, we were there. We saw him crucified. 
And we want you to know, I know it's going to blow your mind, but we saw him in the body. We ate with him. We felt him. He challenged us for 40 days. And that's the way that Paul argues. So if you ever hear from someone, oh, it's a great story, it's inspiring, it's kind of like E.T., no, it ain't. That's not what I'm talking I'm not talking to you about a great fictitious myth. 2,000 years ago, the only man I could ever talk to you about, after they put him in a tomb, he rose again from the dead. And many eyewitnesses that Paul could actually tell the synagogue audience in the late 40s, about 10 years or so, 15 years after Jesus was crucified and rose again, he could say, go back in Jerusalem and check me out. But he does something even more powerful. He does something even more powerful. He says, your Old Testament scripture predicted that Jesus, the Messiah, would rise again from the dead. And the Jewish audience says, what are you talking about? It says... We tell you the good news, what God promised, verse 32, what God promised our fathers, that would be the Jewish fathers in the Old Testament, he's now fulfilled in us. As it was written in the second psalm. The second psalm describes the rulers of the earth and the enemies of the Messiah rise up and they're going to conquer the great Davidic king. God in heaven says, I will laugh. And then God says these words to a son of David, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. And in Psalm 2, it's a statement, the man that was going to rule the universe in Genesis 1 is a son of David that's now been installed as the king of kings. That's the first statement Paul is saying, Psalm 2 predicted that King David would have a son, one of his descendants, and God would say to him, you are my one and only son. You're the king. You're the one that fulfills my original intent in Genesis 1. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. When Jesus rose again from the dead, remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Satan said, you can rule over all the kingdom of the world. You can rule over all the universe if you'll only get down and bow before me. And Jesus says, thou shalt worship only the Lord your God. Then he suffers, he dies. But now Paul is saying, his heavenly father came through. He raised him from the dead. So if you want to follow, don't follow any candidate, ultimately. Don't follow any great cause. The ultimate person, the ultimate king, the ultimate ruler in my life and yours needs to be the one that was in the grave and is now alive. Are my ultimate loyalty, your ultimate loyalty. Then it uses another verse. It says, the fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. And you should be worried about decaying. Whitney Houston is dead, 48 years old, had a voice like an angel. When she sang at the Super Bowl, the Star Spangled Banner, the whole place, they hardly could play the game when she was done. Beautiful girl, you know, big hit in that marvelous song where she holds it on and on and on. And she's dead. Drugs and the life, incredibly gifted. But now she'll be decaying in the grave. Michael Jackson, John F. Kennedy, everybody decayed in the grave. That's one of the big issues in your life, that that's where we're going. That's what happens. We all decay. This verse is telling us there's a great king. It says, I will give you the holy and sure promises to David. 
And that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3. And then in Psalm 16:2, which is the same verse that Peter used in Acts 2, you will not let your Holy One see decay. For when David had served God's purpose of his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his father, and his body decayed. So David's just like us. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Now here's Paul's conclusion. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is declared righteous. That's what it means to be justified. They're declared forgiven. They're declared able to stand with right standing before God. Through this man, everyone that believes in him is justified from everything you could not be justified for from the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Then he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. Look you scoffers, wonder and perish. I'm going to do something in your day that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So Paul uses Psalm 16 to say in the Old Testament, King David said that one of his sons would not decay. He uses Habakkuk, which is one of the great prophets during the Babylonian captivity, to say there's going to be scoffers that mock what God is doing and saying there's no hope. And Paul brings it all together and says it's decision time. It's decision time. Some may have the idea that if we have a great big emotional movement and you really feel it, that's what you need. And I was raised on that. I want you to know that's a good thing. You know, I've been in, you know, like Billy Graham, for example, the ultimate thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want you to see something that's really powerful. The Apostle Paul finishes his message. And the audience, he lets the audience really think about it. This isn't just an emotional decision. He laid out, like this morning, there's an emotional side to it, but it's really the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, the first century witness, the question, who is Jesus? And I want to ask you this morning, who do you trust? Who do you believe in? And the Apostle Paul actually lets them leave. Like he doesn't just drive them. He lets them leave. Look what it says. It says, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things, which they do on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. He talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. But on the next Sabbath, the whole city gathers together, and you can study that this week and go on, because the city of Antioch divides. And one side says... We really believe what Paul and Barnabas said. The other side gets really angry and throws Paul and Barnabas out. And what I want you to see is that in the first century, Jesus is decision time. As we carefully trace Paul's development, Jesus used the whole Old Testament history to promise that a great son of David was coming. As we went on with his message, he proved, based upon the witness of John the Baptist, based upon the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture in Jesus' death, in the proof from scripture that there was a resurrection that was predicted, but he uses eyewitness testimony. And then he declares, he jumps and says, he's not only the son of David, he's not only the great king that you need to believe in, 
He's not only the one that will keep you from decaying, but the reason he can keep you from decaying is he can forgive you and forgive me from our sin. And what Paul does in this message, Dr. Luke has him teach you the book of Ephesians, the book of Romans, so you can say that. Because he said, you are justified. Remember I told you, in the first century church, the first century history, you decide. My Jewish friends say the way that you get right with God, if you go and talk to an Orthodox Jew this week and ask them, how do you get right with God? They're going to tell you it's by the law of Moses. And some of you still believe that. In other words, you think the way that I stand right with God is I try to be good and I try to follow the moral code. And if I follow the code that I'm supposed to follow... God will somehow work it out in the end. That's a very common thing. What the New Testament message is, it's not going to work it out in the end because the code that's written in your heart, you disobey it and I do. And the law of Moses is really, really good, but nobody can keep it. I haven't kept it. You haven't kept it. I want to whet your appetite for the incredible decision Paul is saying. In the first century... In that Jewish synagogue, there's a whole bunch of fellow Jews and God-fears that responded in their hearts and said, Paul and Barnabas, we believe, we trust. It's not going to be the Jewish law and tradition anymore. Moses led us to Jesus, and we ain't ever going back again. And that's what I want our life to be about this week. It's what I want you to train your kids, and there will be lots of questions, but Jesus the incredible son of David is going to be faithful. So take Acts 13, share it with your friends, talk about it in your small groups, interact with your loved ones that don't understand what you believe, but most of all, make sure that you've joined the group, not the jealous group, not the angry religious group, but you've joined that humble group, John the Baptist, Paul, and all those that joined Paul, and you just trust in the crucified, forgiving resurrected Savior.